Lord, we are encouraged today to remember the good news that Jesus is alive. Lord, we ask for your help now that as we consider this incredible truth, Lord, for those of us who are familiar with it, I pray that you would give us a fresh sense of wonder and gratitude. And God, perhaps there are some here this morning who have not considered the profound significance of Christ's resurrection. I pray that for them today, you'd give them eyes to see what they've never seen before, that they would hear this amazing good news and be changed forever. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, and we are now depending on your spirit, and we pray it all for your glory, Father. Amen. So rather than focus on one text of scripture this morning, which is our usual practice, what I'd like to do is set before us the biblical theme of the resurrection. And as we do that, we're going to listen to a whole chorus of biblical authors speak to the significance of this earth-shattering event. What I want to do this morning is to zoom out and to consider and to contemplate not just the event of the resurrection, but the person of Christ who is at the center of it all. My prayer is that today we would fix our gaze on Jesus Christ and that your soul, my soul together, would rejoice in his glory and grace. All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, recount the historical event of Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection. In fact, you can argue that all four of those Gospels, that everything that comes before that story is actually set up for his death, burial, and resurrection. But what does scripture reveal to be the significance of that resurrection? We're here today because we believe that it happened. But what does it mean? Why is this event so significant that it actually forms the cornerstone of our faith? Why is the resurrection of Jesus so significant that we celebrate it not just every Easter, but every week? We gather every week on Sunday the first day of the week when Jesus rose from the grave. Well, as I chewed on this question this week, I've kind of boiled it down into a kind of a dense sentence that answers this question. We're going to unpack it this morning. And here's the answer to that question. If you're taking notes this morning, you can jot this down and then we'll pull it apart into three pieces. The resurrection reveals the glory of God in the exaltation of Christ for the salvation of sinners. Read that again. The resurrection reveals the glory of God in the exaltation of Christ for the salvation of sinners. And every one of those words is important, even the little words, the ins and the fours. So we're going to break that down into three parts. The resurrection reveals the glory of God in the exaltation of Christ for the salvation of sinners. Look at that first part, in the glory of God. I want you to consider this morning, number one, consider the power of the resurrection. Consider the power. The resurrection, as we just said several times in a row, the resurrection reveals the glory of God. And that glory is seen in the power of the resurrection. The apostle Paul wrote this in Philippians chapter 3. He says, I count everything as loss that I may know him, Christ, and the power of his resurrection. Paul says, I count everything else as loss, as nothing. I'll lose it all. I'll give it all up for the sake of knowing Jesus and the power of his resurrection. This glorious power is evident as we consider the resurrection itself. It's evident, first of all, in the fact that the resurrection is a fulfillment of God's word. That takes power. 
Some of you guys who are a little older than me may remember a man named Joe Namath. He said, we're going to win the Super Bowl. And he was right, and everybody was amazed. Well, somebody had to win. It's not that big of a prediction. They may have been the underdogs, but he still had a chance. But consider predicting that you would walk out of the grave. The resurrection is the fulfillment of God's word, an event that was predicted and promised and then accomplished exactly as God said it would be. As Paul reminds the Corinthians uh, in 1 Corinthians 15 about the core of the gospel message, he writes this, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, get this, in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. In accordance with the scriptures. This was supposed to happen. Jesus wasn't surprised. The Father was not surprised. This resurrection was planned, anticipated, and was in fact a prophetic inevitability. We see it in the Old Testament in Psalm 16.9. Speaking of the future Messiah, This messianic psalm says, Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that is to the grave, to death. And you will not let your Holy One see corruption. What happens when you've been in the grave for a couple days? Corruption, right? The promise is that the Messiah, God's anointed, his Holy One, would not be abandoned to the realm of the dead. And that he would not experience corruption. Peter quotes this messianic psalm in his sermon in Acts chapter 2. And he says, this is about Jesus. The apostle Paul references this exact psalm in Acts chapter 13. Both apostles lift up the resurrection of Christ as the fulfillment of this prophecy. Jesus is the son of David. He is the one who has not been abandoned to Sheol. He is the one who is not experiencing one remote molecule of corruption he is the messiah who is destined to reign forever and ever not only do we see the resurrection foreshadowed in prophecies of messiah's future glory like in psalm 16 but we also see it even prophesied in those passages that speak of his future suffering if you're on our email list uh, i invited you all to read through the different passages this week that, that rehearsed the suffering of Christ. And four of those days had, were the different Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But the first day was from Isaiah 53. Listen to what Isaiah 53 says. It recounts the suffering of Christ, but also, if you read carefully, it hints at his resurrection. It says in Isaiah 53.10, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, here's where we start seeing this hint of resurrection. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, there's his suffering, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. But you know what? Bearing their iniquities is not the end of the story. It says in verse 12, Therefore, because he bore their iniquities, because he was crushed, because he was afflicted, because he was bruised and bore stripes for us, because the Lord crushed him, it says, Therefore, I will divide him a portion 
with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. You see, the destiny of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 is not only to bear the penalty for sin for God's people, to be crushed, to be led like a lamb to the slaughter. His destiny is also, get this, to see the reward of his atoning work, to see and be satisfied, to inherit a portion, a glorious inheritance with the many. It says his days would be prolonged and he will look with joy on the results of his saving work and receive glory and honor for what he has done. God's punishment of Messiah will be followed by a demonstration, get this, of God's pleasure in the Messiah. The Old Testament speaks of his suffering, but also of his glory and hints at his resurrection. Though shrouded in shadows and speaking of a future event, Isaiah 53 relates with stunning accuracy the path that Jesus would walk in both his death and his resurrection. But it's not just the Old Testament prophecies that that anticipate Christ's resurrection. The New Testament speaks of it as well. We hear this from the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 8. He's been trying to get his disciples to understand who he is, that he's the Messiah, that he's the Son of God. And when they finally get it, when they finally understand who he is, Then he drops this load on them. He tells them what kind of Messiah he's going to be and what exactly he's going to do. Peter confesses, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And immediately after that, in Mark 8, 31, it says, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus predicted not only his own death, but also his resurrection and the timing of it. Though the disciples were confused by this, they didn't understand, Jesus again and again told them of what was to come as they journeyed to Jerusalem for the Passover. This is what the angel referred to when he explained the empty tomb to the bewildered women in Matthew 28. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 5, the angel says to these women who have come to the graveside, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Jesus predicted his resurrection. Jesus knew his father's will. He knew the Old Testament scriptures, and he knew exactly what was going to happen to him, and he told his followers as much. He told them what was going to come. And you know what happened? Exactly what Jesus said exactly what the Old Testament promised, exactly what the Father and Son and Spirit together in eternity past had planned was going to happen. He rose again. The resurrection demonstrates his power, power to fulfill his promise, power to keep his word, power to accomplish his plans. This is power. Consider the power, the glory of the resurrection. But the resurrection of Jesus not only demonstrates his power to fulfill his word, it also shows his power over death. Carrie read earlier from Revelation chapter 1 I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. You know what it means to have the keys? When, it, when you have the keys to your house, That means you own that house. You're in charge. You have authority in that place. When someone has the keys to the city, it means they're the big man on campus. When Jesus says, I have the keys of death in Hades, he's saying, I have power. 
I have authority over death. This is power. I love Acts 2, 24. It says, God raised him up. Peter's preaching here at Pentecost. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This is power. It was not possible for the grave to hold him down. He has power over death. This powerful miracle is unparalleled in history. There's never been anything like this. Yes, there's been other resurrections. Both in the Old Testament, we see Elijah raising a widow's son from the grave. We see Jesus raising Lazarus and a little girl to back to life. But in the resurrection of Jesus, we find something unique. Those resurrections were simple reversals of death, like pushing the rewind button real quick, restoring to them the life that they had and the body that they had before the darkness of death fell upon them. But Jesus' resurrection is not like that. Those people all had their previous bodies restored to them only to die again, only to experience corruption. But Jesus' body was glorified, never to die again, never to see corruption. In Jesus' resurrection, death has not simply been reversed. It has been defeated and undone. This is power. Although swallowed by the grave, Jesus emerges and fulfills the promise of Isaiah 25. He will swallow up death forever. Paul alludes to this promise and to the words of the prophet Hosea, taunting death itself. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is glory, glory in his power over the grave. But there's more. Not only does the resurrection show his power over death and his power to fulfill his word, but it also shows his power over the evil one. The one who wields the weapon of death against those who are made in God's image. The devil himself. Listen to Hebrews 2.14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. He became one of us. Flesh and blood. And he even experienced death. The author of Hebrews tells us why. So that through death... He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Jesus has power over the evil one, the one who wields death as a weapon against those who are made in God's image. The resurrection is an act of war. It is an outburst of holy violence against the enemy of God. The one who hates you, the one who hates God, the one who hates his purposes, his plans to bless and love and restore. It's a holy act of violence. The serpent's head, as promised, is crushed by the rising Savior. You see, he's not only the Lamb of God who bleeds and dies. Jesus is also the Lion of the tribe of Judah who roars in victory as a conquering king over his enemies, announcing that he is the one who has all authority. So rejoice, you who once feared death, because Christ has triumphed over our ancient 
foe. And here's where it really gets personal for us. Not only does the resurrection show his power to keep his word, his power over death, his power over the devil, the resurrection proves Jesus' power to save. His power to save those who are under the darkness of death, those who are enslaved to the devil, those who are held captive by their sin. Jesus has power to save. Romans 4, verse 24, says that righteousness will be counted to us, us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. What does that big word mean, justification? To be justified means that you are declared righteous, not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done. In his obedience to the law, in his perfect life, Jesus does everything that is required to earn God's favor. He obeys perfectly. And in his death, he suffers the punishment for breaking every one of God's laws, for doing nothing right. And he offers us a trade, a gracious transaction. Those who repent of their sin and come to trust in Jesus, he says, I'll trade you. I will give you my righteousness, and I'll take your sin. It says that he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And the resurrection of Jesus is proof, proof that God has accepted Christ's work of atonement on the cross. If Jesus didn't raise from the grave, we wouldn't be able to be confident that he really did enough to save us. Was God really pleased The resurrection is a receipt, a receipt that says it's been paid in full. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. There is not a shred of evidence that should ever cause us to doubt for one moment that Jesus' death was not enough for us, that his blood maybe can't save That those who cling to Jesus by faith may be in some danger of judgment. No, Romans 8 tells us there is therefore now no condemnation for those who were in Christ Jesus. How do we know this? How can we be so confident? Because God has accepted his sacrifice. He raised him from the dead, received him back into heaven, seated him at his right hand. The temple veil has been torn in two. The sacrifices are no longer necessary. All that we need for salvation has been provided in and been provided by Jesus Christ, accomplished through his death and his resurrection. The resurrection is the explosive affirmation of God the Father that Jesus was right. He was right when he hung on the cross and said, it is finished. God says amen by raising him back from the dead. So we can say with Peter, 1 Peter 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. This is the glorious power of the resurrection. Power to fulfill his promises. Power over death. Power over the devil. And power to save people like you and people like me. So consider this morning his power. The resurrection reveals the glory of God. There's no one else like that. There's no one else like him. 
But secondly, I want you to consider not just the power of the resurrection, consider the purpose of the resurrection, the purpose of the resurrection. And this comes from that second chunk of the statement I made earlier. The resurrection reveals the glory of God in the exaltation of Christ. This is the purpose of the resurrection. The resurrection is not a random or unintentional exercise of power. He's not doing it just to show off because he's bored. No, there's deep connections and significance as to the why God has raised Jesus up from the dead. The divine power demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus has an aim. It has a purpose. It has a goal. And what is that purpose? Why did God raise Jesus up from the dead? To exalt Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The demonstration of glorious power was for the purpose of declaring the Father's pleasure in him and securing honor and praise for him. This is what Jesus prayed for in John chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, John writes, this is near the end of his life, those final hours before his crucifixion. It says, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. It's an ominous statement. Jesus knows what's about to happen. He says, the hour has come. And notice what he asks for. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Glorify your son. Jesus prays that God would glorify him, that God would exalt him. There is glory for Jesus in the resurrection. He is exalted by both his death and resurrection. Look at what it says in 1 Peter 1, verse 10. Peter writes, concerning this salvation, he's been talking about the gospel, the redemption we have in Jesus. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The resurrection reveals the glory of God in the exaltation of Jesus Christ. A few verses later in verse 21 of 1 Peter 1 It says, God raised him from the dead and gave him what? Glory. Gave him glory. We're all familiar with Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. It says that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Hung naked and bare before the mocking and leering crowds to die a painful and humiliating death. God himself in human flesh subjected himself to such humiliation. And it says, therefore, verse nine, God has highly, what? Exalted him. Exalted him, lifted him up, put the spotlight on him, shown everyone how glorious and majestic he is. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus died on the cross because he loves you? Yes. Because you're made in his image? Yes. 
But he died on the cross because of the glory that was on the other side. And God has raised him up so that everyone will see how great Jesus is. The resurrection reveals the glory of God in the exaltation of Jesus. Jesus is exalted in several ways. First, the resurrection exalts Jesus Christ as God. In Romans chapter 1, verse 4, it says, Jesus, he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. How do we know that Jesus is the Son of God? Because he rose from the grave. That is the most profound and fundamental proof, the definitive proof that Jesus is God. It's the resurrection. This is one way that the resurrection exalts Jesus. It proves who he is. It authenticates him as the divine son of God, God himself, one with the Father, co-equal in glory. The definitive proof that Jesus is God is in the resurrection. Not only is he exalted as God in the resurrection, he's also exalted as the messianic king, the one that was promised, the one that they were all waiting for, the one who is destined to rule and reign in glory over all the earth forever and ever. The resurrection says, that's Jesus. It's Jesus. Hebrews 10 verse 12 says, When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Not just anybody gets to sit there, okay? He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And that's a reference to the messianic promise that God would exalt the Messiah and put all his enemies under his feet. Hebrews says that Jesus is the one who will reign forever and ever as the messianic king. He is the one who will one day return and bring to life the vision seen by Daniel. Daniel 7, 14 says, To him, to this glorious son of man that's coming in glory in the clouds, it says, To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. At his return, this king, our king Jesus, will bring deliverance to his people and judgment to his enemies. In Acts 17, 31, says he has fixed a day, there's a day coming, on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God raised him up from the dead, assuring us that Jesus is the one who will preside over his kingdom in judgment on that final day. All who mocked him and said, Hail, King of the Jews, as they spit on him and flogged him and beat him, they were mistaken. Pilate, who wrote the mocking and ironic script that was nailed above his head on the cross, King of the Jews, he was right in ways that he didn't even understand. They were blind to this truth of who Jesus was. But the resurrection authenticates his message that he is the Son of Man. He is the Messiah. He is David's heir who will reign forever. And it vindicates him as the true Messiah. The resurrection reveals the glory of God in the exaltation of Jesus Christ. So consider his power. Consider the purpose of the resurrection. But then third, I want you to consider the promise of the resurrection. 
Because there is a promise. Something to be hoped in. Something to be received. Something to be believed. Something to hold on to in faith. Consider the promise of the resurrection. The resurrection reveals the glory of God in the exaltation of Christ for the salvation of sinners. This is the promise of the resurrection. In John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Unless Jesus comes back, everyone in this room is going to die. Someone's going to bury you and hopefully say lots of nice things. Hopefully show some cute pictures and not show the pictures that you're embarrassed about. But they're going to put your body in a box and lower it in the ground. But there's a promise. Whoever believes in Jesus, even though he dies, yet shall he live. You see, the resurrection means victory not just for Jesus over death. It means victory for us as well. By faith, we are united with Christ and we come to share in his death and his resurrection. Colossians 1.18 says that he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. And Paul says he is the firstborn from the dead. Think about that for a moment. The firstborn from the dead. What does that mean? It means there's going to be others. It means that the resurrection of Jesus was not the only one of its kind. It's the first of many. The first of many. Jesus invites us to share in his resurrection and in his glory to experience that power, to experience that victory. Romans 8 verse 11 says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The Welsh poet George Herbert once remarked that the resurrection of Jesus has turned death, who was formerly, formerly an executioner, into a gardener. Death used to be an executioner. But now for Christians, for those who know Jesus, death is merely a gardener planting seeds that are destined to sprout up and grow to life again. All who believe in Christ and receive his spirit are destined to experience a resurrection like his. Romans 6 verse 5 says, If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. What a promise. What a promise for those of us who are destined to die. Philippians 3.21 says that he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. In the gospel, we receive a great blessing, a great gift, the defeat of our ancient foe, a solution for our sinful condition, and a promise for the future that one day we will live with Christ. As Jesus said in Matthew 13, 43, one day the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. That's a promise. Consider the promise of the resurrection. This is the significance of the empty tomb. The resurrection reveals the glory of God in the exaltation of Christ for the salvation of sinners. 
I want you to think for a moment. Think about what this means for us. Apart from Christ, if you don't believe in him, if your heart is not submitted to him, if you're not resting in his promise, you have no power. Apart from Christ, you are a slave to your sin. And you are doomed to die. Apart from Christ, you are helpless to change your spiritual condition. Apart from Christ, you are helpless to somehow magically achieve this kind of a resurrection on your own. This is why the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 3, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Every career, every reputation, every relationship, every dollar to my name, every item that I own, every hour of my life, my health, my goals, my dreams, all of it. Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Why? In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. He knows that's futile. Paul says, but in order that I may have a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says there is nothing that's worth keeping if it means you're not going to share in this resurrection. Let me ask you this morning, Perhaps you're not a follower of Jesus. Perhaps you've never confessed your need for him and repented of your sin and received the gift of salvation. Let me warn you this morning. Apart from Jesus, you have no hope and you're doomed. But Jesus offers himself to you freely. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me Though he dies, yet shall he live. Friends, we need Jesus. We need his righteous life. We need his sacrificial death. And we need his victorious resurrection. And listen, any theology that denies those truths is damnable because it sends people to hell. Any attitude that ignores this reality is arrogant and foolish. You may think that you can reach heaven on your own, but you are sadly mistaken. All we have is Christ. He's our only hope. He's the only way. And I'm asking you this morning to believe in this and to reject any subtle claim to the contrary. Not only do I want you to understand these truths with your mind and to grasp them and to believe them, but friends, we also must cherish these truths in our hearts. We must cherish them. An embrace of these truths, of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, of his power and his glory and the gracious promises of salvation for us, if we believe that, if we embrace that, then it ought to affect us. If these things don't stir you up, if it doesn't excite you, if it doesn't humble you, if it doesn't make you weep and laugh and shout and pray, if it doesn't affect you, 
then I don't know if you really know who Jesus is. An embrace of these truths should produce gratitude and joy and great confidence. You see, Romans 8 says, not even death can separate us from the love of Christ. In all these things, even in death, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Are your affections stirred this morning by what Jesus has done in rising from the dead? You know, there is a time and a place for mourning and for sadness and for grief. Not denying that, the Bible affirms that. Read Psalms, you will see a litany of emotions demonstrated. But for the Christian, grief and groaning do not have the last word. And we don't stay there. We don't stay there. Though we may weep, we do not despair. Though we may mourn, we do not lose hope. Psalm 30 verse 5 says, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. The resurrection tells us that this is true. That no matter what happens, I mean the worst thing that can happen to you, you die. And those that you love die. Resurrection is coming for all who believe in Jesus. That's the final word. That's the end of the story. And nothing that we face in this world can change what Jesus accomplished. Nothing in this whole entire world can deny its power in our lives. In Christ we are saved and guaranteed to rise again, period. Full stop. What a source of comfort and courage and confidence it should make us to sing. It should stir up gratitude and love and awe and humility and joy and confidence and courage and boldness and help us to endure, energize us to proclaim Christ, encourage us when we suffer. The resurrection matters and it should affect us, not just in our minds, but our emotions and our heart. So when you fear, look to the risen Christ. When you grieve, when you suffer, when that which is precious to you is taken, when you experience pain, set your hope in the promise of the resurrection. I love what D.A. Carson said a few years back. He said, there's nothing wrong in my life that a good resurrection couldn't fix. That's true, isn't it? It's true. The glorious truth of the Easter story calls us to set our hope in him. And that means you may need to do something this morning. You may need to consciously speak to your emotions and remind your heart of what is true and preach these truths into your own soul until they are a foundation, an anchor that keeps you from getting tipped over by the winds and the waves of life that come and go. This is a constant and a truth that is to be a foundation for us. But you have a choice. You can stand on this truth. You can trust in it. You can believe in it. You can find comfort in it. Or you can ignore this truth and you can ride the waves of life, the circumstances, the ups and downs, the emotions, the griefs. You can try your hardest to do your best to put your own life together. That's gonna be a roller coaster. (laughs) Set your hope on Christ. Christian, set your hope continually upon Christ. Yes, you're saved. Yes, you will be raised from the dead. But did you know it's possible to actually not enjoy the comfort that that promise brings? To have it be true of you? To be like the little baby. Some of you have have had little children. You go in at night because your infant has woken up and is crying because they're cold, because they've kicked off their covers. It's lying right next to them. 
So you go back and you wrap them back up, tuck them in, and hope that they sleep for a couple hours so that you can catch up, right? Sometimes we are like that. We have this comfort, this security, this promise. It's right next to us, but we're not taking advantage of it. Christian, I want you to meditate on the glory of the resurrection this morning and be encouraged. Perhaps you know this story. Perhaps you've heard about Jesus rising from the dead. But maybe this morning you actually don't know the person at the center of this story. Perhaps what I'm talking about for you, you can tell that I'm excited and a lot of these people are excited, but you don't own that. Jesus died on the cross, friend, so that you could be saved. And I invite you this morning to recognize that you desperately need what only Jesus can provide. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But the promise is that everyone who comes to him can receive this gift. Will you come? You can push this off. You can say, you know what, I'm not interested. But let me tell you, you are not guaranteed tomorrow. Death is coming for all. And you've heard the good news. Receive it. Trust in Jesus and become a child of God. Receive the the pronouncement of forgiveness for your sins and receive the promise of resurrection. Jesus offers himself to you this morning. He offers his atoning work on the cross. He offers you his resurrection life. If you're united with him by faith today, you can join with us in celebrating this truth. You can join us in anticipating the return of our Savior and our own glorious resurrection. So friends, today as we remember and celebrate Easter, I hope that you will consider the power and the glory of this resurrection. Consider the purpose of it in the exaltation of Christ and consider the promise of resurrection. It is for us. The resurrection reveals the glory of God and the exaltation of Christ for the salvation of sinners. Let's rejoice in this victory of our Savior and King and let's worship him with gratitude for all that he has done through his Son for us. God in heaven, we are floored when we consider the glory of the resurrection. Your power is unlike anyone else. You are in a category all by yourself. And God, we worship and adore you and stand in awe at your greatness and your majesty and your power. And God, we recognize this morning your purpose in the resurrection of exalting Jesus. Jesus, you who suffered and was humiliated, you bled and died on our behalf. You didn't have to do that, but you willingly subjected yourself to the will of your Father for our sake and for your glory to demonstrate your love for us. And Jesus, we recognize this morning that upon you has been bestowed the name above every name. And this morning we bow our knees and our tongues confess that you are Lord and we give you glory and praise. You deserve it. You are worthy to receive wisdom and power and honor and glory and blessing and strength. And God, we thank you for your gracious promise that those of us who are trapped in sin and sentenced to death have been set free through what you have done. Thank you, God, for those of us who who have been given this gracious gift. We thank you for opening our eyes and our hearts to receive your grace. 
And God, for those here this morning who don't know you, I pray that you would give them eyes to see and draw them to yourself this morning. Convince them of their need for your son Jesus and awaken them to the glorious beauty of the gospel and grant them the gift of repentance and faith so that they might come to you and believe and be saved so that more voices can be added to the chorus that will sing for all eternity of your glorious salvation. God, we thank you. We praise you. Press these truths home into our hearts so that we go from this place filled with joy and gratitude at all you have done for us. Amen.